Hi. Welcome to FizzGig. I'm Wendy Althwaite, and I admit to being fascinated by fizz. The taste, the tingle, and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular, or even about English sparkling wine in general. It's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod every Friday, and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, whilst not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your goodie bag as a little fact to take away. So here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today we're going to take our first sip together of the world's most famous sparkling wine, Champagne. Although no one knows the exact figure, Champagne produces about 330 million bottles a year. Apparently, a bottle of Moët de Chandon is popped somewhere in the world every two seconds. So where is Champagne? It's in northern France, 150 kilometres to the east of Paris. Its main cities are Epernay, which is easy to pronounce, and Reims, which is less so. It's pretty big. 86,500 acres, that's 35,000 hectares of vineyards, ranging over the Champagne area, which itself is 25,606 kilometres squared. To make that meaningful, I'll adopt the journalistic habit of measuring in units of Wales. It is larger than Wales, and for that matter, larger than Slovenia and Israel. But it's a bit smaller than Belgium, with its population of 11.5 million people. So it's a pretty big area for a wine-producing region. And it's getting bigger, by about 30%. In 1927, Champagne vineyards covered 319 villages in five departments. In 2007, Champagne's boundaries were revised to add another 45 villages. The reason for enlargement was simply that the demand for Champagne outstripped supply. But now that Champagne sales are falling a little, there's the opposite fear, that a glut of Champagne will depress prices. A final announcement on enlargement is expected in 2024, but it could be disruptive. If your land is just outside the Champagne zone, it's worth €12,000. Just inside the zone, €600,000 an acre. It's like winning the lottery. By the way, Champagne, the place, derives from the Latin Campania, which originally described the level open countryside around Rome and is also the root of campus, the ground around a university. There are five main regions in Champagne with 17 sub-regions and they cover a range of terrains and soils. We'll start our journey at the top of the Montagne de Reims. As the name suggests, this is a mountain. Its vineyards are based on chalk, but they also have loam, lignite, limestone, clay, sand, silt and marl. We'll look at terroir in a future podcast, but while no one seems to mention anything but chalk and limestone, 
there are about 30 different soil types in Champagne. As Monsieur Drapier of Champagne House Drapier said, terroir used to be considered rude in Champagne. It's all about blending and dosage. In the Montagne de Reims, mostly Pinot Noir is grown. It's a black grape, but it's used to make white wine in Champagne. Which brings us to the Côte des Blancs. This is the home of Chardonnay, a white grape that covers 95% of the area. The Côte de Blanc is an easterly facing slope based on chalk and it produces elegant wines with high acidity. Down to the Marne Valley. The Marne River, which is a tributary of the Seine, flows to Paris and it has Pinot Meunier growing on its riverbanks. It's called Pinot Meunier, Meunier meaning Miller, because the young vine leaves have a rather sweet white fluff on them so they look as if they've been dusted with flour. Again, the Marne has lots of different soils and again Pinot Meunier is a black grape which is used to make white wine. The river has been pretty useful. Not only could it transport barrels and later bottles of wine to Paris, but Parisians made their own contribution in return. Rubbish. Parisian rubbish was collected and used as fertiliser on the vineyards of Champagne. And that was great when it was mainly vegetable peelings, but it wasn't so great when it became plastic and other environmentally unfriendly detritus. The Champagne houses tend not to invite you to look at their vineyards. There are lots of chateaux and swanky tasting rooms to distract you instead. But some of the vineyards literally sparkle with broken glass from the rubbish. But I digress. We were heading south to the Côte de Cézanne, which is most well known for its Chardonnay, but Pinot Noir is increasingly popular. It faces southeast, and the soil is chalk, marl and sand, and it produces bold, aromatic Chardonnays. Further south still is the Aube, which is also known as the Côte de Bar. The Aube is really quite far south and stands all alone on the other side of the plains, about 150 kilometres from Epernay. In fact, it's closer to Chablis than Epernay. The Aube has mostly Pinot Noir and, although it's largely unacknowledged, provides just under a quarter of all Champagne production. The soil has layers of Cumeridian clay and Portland stone with silt, sand and marl. Typically, the Pinot Noir from the Aube is more fruity and has lower acidity. In 1911, the Champagne riots, which sound much more fun than they were, pitted the people of the Orb, who fought to retain the right to provide grapes for Champagne, against the people of the Marne, who tried to exclude them. And this was a little odd, given that the Duke of Champagne was based in the Orb. The compromise was that the Orb could produce grapes for Champagne but they'd have second-class status and would only be paid at 80% of the normal rate. Little has changed over the last century. The people of the Marne still look down on the people of the Orb and consider that their grapes are of lesser quality. Nevertheless, Orb grapes are taken 80 miles north to the Marne to be processed, even if unacknowledged, into Champagne. This must have been particularly galling for the people of the Orb, because from the Middle Ages, it had been the wealthiest region of Champagne, and before Phylloxera, 
the pest that destroyed European grapevines in the late 19th century, there were more vineyards in the Orb than in the Marne. So what are the grapes grown in Champagne? Well, you've already heard me mention Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, and these are the three musketeers of Champagne. People generally don't mention anything else. But in fact, there are seven different permissible grape varieties in Champagne, and the other four are Pinot Blanc, known in Champagne as Blanc Vrai, Pinot Gris, known in Champagne as Fromenteau, Petit Meusier, and Arban. When Champagne first became famous for its sparkling wines, it was considered very northerly and very chilly for a wine-growing region. The grapes it produced had greater acidity, were less fruity, and were overall rather thin, which is why they were manipulated into sparkling wines in the first place. But now with global warming, Champagne is hotting up, and this is causing a few issues. The harvest happens earlier than it did. Instead of harvesting in September, now starts in August. The grapes can develop high sugars, and that in turn gives too much alcohol to be legal. So the grapes have to be picked earlier, perhaps before they're even phenolically ripe, which in turn affects the flavour of the wine. But most seriously, over the last 30 years, the grapes have lost acidity, particularly in the hotter Augusts. And that means the wines lack structure, become flabby and don't age well. And ageing is essential for the autolytic characters that are a hallmark of a great champagne. But don't despair! Some champagne houses are experimenting with the forgotten old grapes of champagne. Over the last seven years, Bollinger has planted Pinot Gris in the hope that they'll provide freshness. And Trappier has been making champagnes from Arban and Petit Muselier because of their slower ripening and the higher levels of natural acidity. Other Champenois are experimenting with the crossings of Champagne varieties with hybrid grapes to slow the rate of ripening and resist the higher risk of disease like botrytis in the warmer, wetter world. So watch this space. We may get even more than the magnificent seven grape varieties in Champagne in future. So let's look at the different styles of Champagne. We'll start with non-vintage or multi-vintage. That's often abbreviated to NV or MV. This is a blend of different grapes, usually Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, harvested in different years and blended together, usually follows a house style. And it's aged for a minimum of one and a half years. By the way, in Champagne, a vintage wine simply means that all the grapes have come from the same year. It does not necessarily mean that it's a particularly good year. So it's not like other wine regions where a vintage is declared for the region in fabulous years. So don't be tricked into thinking that vintage is good and non-vintage is a lesser wine. Arguably, champagnes benefit from all sorts of wines from different years, each contributing to make the whole more than the sum of its parts. The non-vintage wines of the champagne houses strive for consistency. So wherever you are, when you found your favourite champagne house, whenever you buy a bottle of classic non-vintage, it should taste the same. No nasty surprises. However, a vintage millesime is where the champagne region declares a great year. And curiously, it happens more often than you might think. 
46 out of the last 60 years have been declared a vintage millisime. Those champagnes have to be aged for a minimum of three years. And then there's the Cuvée de Prestige. This is the Champagne House's best wine. It's also called the Tête de Cuvée or the Grande Cuvée. Louis Rodera has Cristal, which used to be just for the Russian Tsar to drink, but now anyone who can afford it can sip it. Moët Chandon has Dom Perignon. Paul Roger has Cuvée Winston Churchill, which they created in 1984 following Churchill's death in 1965. A Blanc de Blanc is literally a white wine from white grapes. It's usually Chardonnay, but it can be Pinot Blanc. Whereas a Blanc de Noir, I bet you've already guessed this, is a white wine from black grapes. You just press the grapes really gently so there's no skin contact. And the black grapes are usually Pinot Noir and or Pinot Meunier. And finally, there is rosé. Now you can make rosé and champagne in different ways. First, you can let the grape juice macerate with the black grape skins to pick up the red colour. This is called saigné, which means bleeding. It was historically a byproduct of red wine production. If you bled off some juice, there was a higher black grape skin to juice ratio, so you'd get a darker, and therefore a more desirable, red wine. The leftover bled wine was very pale and used to be turned into rosé. It would turn from red to pink as it fermented. Alternatively, you can just mix up a little white wine with some red wine. This is completely illegal for anything other than sparkling wines. And the red wine can be added to the white wine at various stages. Conventionally, you'd blend the red and the white wines together before bottling so that they'd go through secondary fermentation together. But some winemakers just added a bit of red wine at disgorgement when the champagnes were finished. Just enough to get a pretty pink colour. It probably won't tell you on the back label how the rosé is made, and it may sound like a bit of a swizz, particularly if they charge more for rosé champagnes than the normal ones. But next time you sip a rosé champagne, why not close your eyes and see if you can taste it? You may be surprised. So, anyone for pudding? Although it's very well known, I just couldn't start a podcast about champagne without mentioning the fabulous Lily Bollinger, who declared, I drink champagne when I'm happy and when I'm sad. Sometimes I drink it when I'm alone. When I have company, I consider it obligatory. I trifle with it if I'm not hungry and drink it when I am. Otherwise, I never touch it, unless I'm thirsty. So there we have it, Fizzerati. We've tickled our noses with the world's most famous effervescence and taken our first sip together of champagne. There's so much more to say, but we'll have to leave it till the second bottle. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next Friday when we'll decipher the label and see who makes champagne and how. Until then, may your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Chin chin.